So last time, we began looking at the end of the third, what they call incomplete cycle of speeches between Job and his friends. And specifically, we looked at the problem found in chapter 27, the concluding chapter which ends his interaction with them. Now, as we already noted, the pattern that the three friends they gave their speeches is cut short with the third friend, Zophar, who is seemingly not given a third shot at Job. However, there is an oddity in chapter 27, as we discovered. While the whole chapter is traditionally attributed to a speech of Job, the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 12, sound markedly different in tone from the second half, verses 13 through 23. Now, almost as if there are two different people speaking. Specifically, the first half sounds like Job, and the second half sounds like one of his friends. Now, the beginning of the speech is, once again, Job is calling for his vindication, as we looked at. He says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right." Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So the bitterness seems to be growing in Job, who at each speech is being delivered. He becomes more dug in and convinced that God has wronged him. And now more than ever, he will either persevere until he's vindicated or die trying. So he's convinced that he's been wronged and that he will not relent no matter the cost. He will not give in, even though he might perhaps think that it's pointless to continue. Really, this is sort of the same callous attitude produced in us when we insist that we are right. right? We will die on that hill to vindicate ourselves, right? But Job's callousness is growing And it's growing in a very dark direction as he will offer prayers of imprecation, that is, curses. He says, let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. Now, Job's had just about enough of his friends. He no longer sees them as simply wrong or in error, but now as his true enemies who have risen up against him, They're looking to prolong his suffering, he thinks. But Job isn't going to take it anymore. While they've been accusing him of being unrighteous and therefore right for judgment, Job is now calling for God to vindicate him and silence them. Now, this is eerily similar to the Psalms of imprecation, which call for the enemies to be destroyed by God. Now, this language is perhaps why we don't hear anymore from his friends after this point. His condemnation then continues. He says, For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you, you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you together uh, become altogether vain? 
So Job is offering a little hope for his friends as he lumps them up in the mass of perdition, and in doing so offers them a little comfort. Eliphaz earlier told him that he would uh, show Job the error of his ways, but now Job is saying, no, 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 I will show you where, where you've gone wrong. I will teach you concerning the hand of God. Now Job is going back on what he was saying earlier on. Do you remember when he said that if he was in their shoes, that he would offer them comfort? Well, he's not going to offer them comfort here, obviously. He's offering them condemnation. But up to this point of the chapter, this language sounds like Job. But herein lies the problem, the problem of uh, chapter 27. Then in verse 13, the language shifts in a polar opposite direction. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have, have not enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. Now, what's confused scholars is that, that Job's language here sounds strikingly similar to that of Zophar, in which Zophar, do you recall, in his second speech, declared this. He says, this is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed by him, for him by God. So why is all of a sudden Job sounding like Zophar? It's very strange. After all, he's been telling them up to this point, he doesn't understand why he's suffering. He's not wicked. Then all of a sudden, why is this change of tone? Why is he changing the subject? Is he suffering from a split personality or something else going on here? Well, some scholars think that perhaps this is some sort of scribal error. They theorize that verses 1 through 12 were actually from Job. But then in verses 13 through 23, there are actually Zophar's long-lost third speech, as it is very similar to his second one. However, there's no textual evidence to support this other than a change of tone. Further, it's not a consensus among scholars which of the verses, and that is 13 through 23, belong to him and which belong to Job. But if we trust this to be Job and not Zophar, what can uh, explain this seemingly bipolar shift in Job? Now, it's very possible that Job is quoting Bildad in verse 13 in order to show that he doesn't completely disagree with his friends. As we have already gleaned from our study, it's not so much that Job disagrees with his friends about their assessment of the wicked, but rather what? That their vain speech, as he calls it, has more to do with their evaluation of Job as wicked. So Job's theology at this point probably still closely aligns to his friends and that the wicked get judgment for being wicked. This is why Job is so stumped by why God would treat him when he does not seem him, see himself as wicked. So in other words, he agrees that the wicked do get what they get, but he's not wicked. Now, Job's realization as we pick up this week is a very dire one. He's starting to see things unravel in his own mind. He knows that the wicked suffer, but he doesn't consider himself wicked. Now, this will cause him to have somewhat a crisis of faith. 
So then in chapter 28, the scene shifts. Up to this point, we've seen a, uh, a dialogue between him and his friends, going back and forth about, uh, about him being wicked or not being wicked. But now it turns from an outward dialogue to an inward monologue in Job's mind. He begins to question internally what he has believed. That is, can wisdom ever be found? Job begins his reflection in chapter 28 by considering the remarkable feats accomplished by mankind. He says, surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the furthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up, uh, up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has the dust of gold. So Job here is reflecting on the technological brilliance that mankind has demonstrated and how he finds precious metals from the deepest depths of the earth. And it is truly remarkable, if you think about it, how God has equipped mankind with technology, right? How is it possible that he's able to tunnel into materials that seem to be impenetrable, right? As dangerous as it has always been, the fact that mankind has found out ways to retrieve and extract materials deep from the earth is truly remarkable. But not only that, but mankind has also found ways to use what he's extracted from the earth. Yet Job recognizes that this man, this gift is of man alone, as he says, that path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Now, man is unique in all of creation in exercising these gifts. As Job reflects, while the bird is known for his far-reaching vision in the air, his vision can't compare to the ability of man to see what cannot be seen but only through his ingenuousness, right? And the mighty beasts and all their strength cannot burrow and create wide tunnels out of hardened rock out of the mountains and claim the resources for their own. Only man has the ability to tame both the animal kingdom and the terrain. But despite this God-given ability and how amazing it truly is, there seems to be something that continues to evade man's grasp a treasure that he cannot seem to extract or to uncover, as Job continues his thought. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. For Job, wisdom is the last great frontier for mankind. Physical impediments are not insurmountable for him. As long as he perseveres, there's a great likelihood that he will succeed, right? Now, as we've seen that many times in the 20th century, right? How amazing it is to think that at the dawn of the 20th century, we were still dependent on horse-drawn carriages. 
but then just a few decades later, we're on the moon, right? Just a few years ago, you had to go to a library where the books were to find knowledge, right? But now, just on your phone, you can obtain a lot more material than it was available to them even 50 years ago in a library. It truly is remarkable what man has been able to accomplish. But this is the point. For all of man's might, he cannot obtain wisdom on his own at least not among those who are living, as Job says. Now, he's asked, this really is asking the question, can wisdom be found from the realm of the dead? And we'll reconsider that in just a few moments as he will consider that again. But for now, Job considers other options. He says, the deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it is not within me. It it cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire. So Job tries to find wisdom in the depths of the sea, the most recessed parts of the earth. But guess what? He can't find it there. How about the underground or the mountain? Can it be mined? No one like precious metals. Wisdom cannot be taken from the depths of the ground either. It remains elusive. But if it cannot be mined, then perhaps it can be bought, he thinks. But Job says no to this proposition as well. People have long tried to use the resources to buy a way to get wisdom, but have always been left disappointed. Wisdom cannot be weighed like gold or precious stones. It is invaluable, right? As he says, Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. So the idea of obtaining wisdom is seemingly almost an impossibility for Job. You see, he thought he had it all figured out. But when the trials came and his affliction came, he knew better. He thought that the favor that he had from God was due to the fact that he was upright He thought he had earned his favor with God, but his suffering was undoing all of that thinking now. So now he thinks, and he ponders, I've looked at all these things, but I could not understand where wisdom is. So therefore, from where then does wisdom come? And where is all the place of understanding It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it as with our ears. So Job is reiterating the fact that it's a seeming impossibility for man to achieve true wisdom as is concealed from all creation, either from those in the land or in the air. No matter your perspective, then you cannot find it. You cannot find wisdom. But perhaps can it be found in the afterlife? Told you you're going to revisit that. If you recall, as Job said in verse uh, 13, wisdom cannot be found in the land of the living, but perhaps could it be found in the dead? Now, it's quite clever. Job is creating two new characters here. Right? He is personifying what he calls Abaddon, 
that is destruction or decay, and death, as if they are people who can answer this question. This is very common in uh, all poetry, but especially biblical poetry, to personify a certain thing, a certain attribute, so to speak, in order to make a point. And that's what Job is doing here. He said he has asked destruction, he has asked death about if, where wisdom can be found. But they said, well, we've heard of it, but we don't really know much about it. So even in the afterlife, wisdom cannot be found. So the question continues to be, does Job have any confidence that wisdom can be found, or is this a completely futile task? Now, perhaps Job is feeling a bit sorry for himself here, as often is his pattern, as we've seen. He has felt constantly that he's uh, suffered unjustly, and he can't understand why. He thought he had wisdom, but his suffering has proven to him that he never had it to begin with, at least the way he thought. However, Job begins to see what he really knew all along, that wisdom, just like his mediator, cannot be found in this world. As he ponders, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. So here, Job is acknowledging if wisdom is going to be found, God alone is able to reveal it. Now, interestingly, this passage in Job is strikingly similar to Proverbs 8, the proverb about wisdom. You remember when we uh, looked at the introductory uh, part of the book of Job, we had mentioned that the book was probably not fully completely written until sometime after David. Well, it's very possible that either Job was influenced by Solomon or perhaps Solomon was influenced by Job. We don't know which one it could be, but we do see some striking parallels between the two passages here. This comes from Proverbs chapter 8, starting in verse 24, where he says, When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Both Job and Solomon recognize that wisdom has always been the, the companion of God since before creation. God alone is the source of all wisdom, and by it, he created the world. But more than that, it's important to note what Job's admission was. I'm going to go back to it. 
as he says in verse 27. He saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. So this is telling because Job acknowledges that God alone determines what is wise and what is good. He determines what wisdom is. Further, this is perhaps a reluctant acknowledgement that Job knows that ultimately he will have to accept God's dealings with him as wise and good. So you can see how Job's theology is slowly evolving from a system of pure action consequence to now one that recognizes that all that God does is good and just. Mm-hmm. See, and you know, in that language you just showed us in both passages, mm-hmm. um, you can hear God's response to Job. You know, where were you? Mm-hmm. Um, where were you whenever I set the boundaries of the waters and plumbed the depths of the earth? So that's far. right. So that's that, those are all, as you're pointing out, those are all euphemisms for God's wisdom. Right. Exactly. So God is telling Job. Well, Yeah, we'll see that, and it's a great point, because it really is, God is going to use the words of Job in order, pretty much put him back in his face. He's acknowledged this, and now God said, okay, you know, where were you? (laughs) So again, because as we will see, this is not the end of the matter for Job. Job is still going to make his final case, despite this fact. And, And so... But just like all of us, we, we know this deep down, right? But does that keep us from questioning God? No, we still question God, don't we? We still question God often. We question his wisdom. We question his dealings with us. And at the end of the day, we have to, you know, we know that he alone is the one. He saw it and declared it and established it and searched it out, Right? He is the one who has written all of our days in a book. Amen. We often forget that. And we, that's why we question God. It's almost as if we don't think that God knows the end from the beginning, right? But he does. He does. And that really is the insanity of our lack of faith, right? We've been given faith. He's given us that understanding. And yet, because sin still dwells in our members, that old man comes out and it causes us to doubt what we know to be true, right? I'm thinking of uh, Romans 9, is it? The mm-hmm. potter? Yes. And he has the right, who are you, oh man? The Absolutely. Clay, the clay to argue with the potter. That, that's right, yeah. that's right. And, you know, it's, it, it, it should be good enough that he says it's so. And we accept it, we, if we, even if we had no basis or of understanding, it should be enough because he created us. But guess what? He has. He has. He has condescended to us. He has given us uh, revelation. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. We, we, exp- we think more of ourselves uh, than we are, more highly than we ought. Uh, God owes us absolutely nothing, Amen. absolutely nothing. And therefore, to question him, uh, the gracious God who has given us everything, and not has given us life and breath, but also salvation, and revelation that we would question him, right? All right, Lonnie? That's uh, like Stan Singer's quote that man is uncomfortable, mm-hmm. uncontrollable. That, that's, that's really what it is. You know, and again, that going back to the, the sin of Adam in the garden, you know, God had given him uh, this command, 
And we don't know what changed in Adam, but there was a bent that took place that caused him to, that he was uncomfortable with a God who controlled everything, right? He was. And we are too, if we're really honest about it. We, do, we struggle with it. We say that we believe in God. We believe in his sovereign uh, hand and dealings in our lives. Uh, but often too, the proof is in the pudding. Um, our actions speak loudly. Our, our faith speaks loudly about how much we truly trust. Now we know that we will never in this life fully trust God the way that we should because sin still dwells in our members. That part is going to, and again, I love that in the Heidelberg Catechism, why do we still have to die? To stop the sinning, right? We have to, the dying stops the sinning unless the Lord, again, as Pastor loves to say, unless the Lord tarries and uh, he comes back and, and, and uh, brings us uh, into his presence that way. That, those, for those in that generation, their sinning will stop as they're living. But for most of us, it will be when we pass on and when we die. Right, Dave? I was just thinking about the propensity of man to think that he has answers to everything, mm-hmm. and he wants to be his own God, and he wants to push God out of the way mm-hmm. because he does not believe in his absolute sovereignty. That's right. That's right, and and again, we it's um, we're often our own worst enemies, and again, God, uh, God is going to use what He will in order to bring us into the image of His Son Jesus Christ. Again, that is His goal. His goal is not your happiness, as as some like to say, your best life now, right? No, your best life now is to look like Christ. Not to, not to have your best parking place, not to have a bank account full of money. It is that you are conformed to Jesus Christ. Now, what that means, it may mean, is that you suffer every day of your life. And, and to let every, different levels and degrees, we all do. But that means the greater the suffering, the greater opportunity there is to look like Christ, right? But that's hard to, 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 to accept in ourselves, isn't it? Amen. Now, his proclamation here, as we will see, is God is going to establish what's good. And so he's now going to have to accept God's dealings with him. And so his, his uh, theology is evolving to a system that was just a pure action consequence I lived upright, so God should bless me, right? That sounds more like the health wealth gospel than it does the true word of God. But now it's evolving to one where he acknowledges that all that God does is just and good. So therefore, he concludes by saying this, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it should. Similar proclamations are given in both Psalm 111, verse 10. You all know this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it and have, uh, have a good understanding. And then in Proverbs 1, 7, that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, our two things of note here in Job's admission. First, while it's missed in the English, wisdom is designated with the article the and for the most of the book. So it's referred to in most of the book up until chapter or verse 28 as the wisdom. The wisdom specifically. 
with the definite article. Now, this is important because in verse 28, the uh, uh, definite article is omitted to just wisdom. And this is important because up to this point, he's been talking about wisdom with reference to God. God has the wisdom, right? He has the wisdom. The reason why this is important, because God is the source of all perfect wisdom, right? He is the one who has the wisdom. But when it's referenced to man, like it is here with Job, where he leaves out the definite article here, what he's admitting here, that uh, man's wisdom is not perfect nor original, is it? But it's imperfect and derivative, right? It's derived from God. So while men, being in the image of God, can exercise wisdom, it's not the wisdom, right? That is why Job must trust in God, because his wisdom, Job's wisdom, is not perfect like God's wisdom. But second, the admission in Psalms and Proverbs is that if you want to start down the path of being wise, you must fear the Lord. But Job's proclamation is somewhat more emphatic. He's saying that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. That is, wisdom will continue to elude you if you do not fear the Lord. Job's admission is perhaps telling himself that the answers he seeks will not be found until he properly humbles himself before God. So next week, as we will continue, the fact that Job acknowledges this He's having this inner dialogue with himself, this inner monologue, that he must trust in the wisdom of God before he makes his final pleas to God to hear his case. So do we have any comments or questions this evening? Jake. Hey, Jordan, I was, I was noticing there um, in where it says the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. I think one of the impacts that it made on me was that um, that, that phrase before the fear of the Lord we know um, that that we don't we don't come up with that on our own. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, if the fear of the Lord is, if that is wisdom, then we're dependent on Him mm-hmm. to be given that. Right. That's we're, right. We're dependent on Him to to fear the Lord because we don't when we we're born we don't fear the Lord we're we're right. self made men right. That's right. Uh, and women and so um, the fact that the fear of the Lord is a gift. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't. We're not going to have any wisdom unless the Lord gives it to us. That's right. So, um, That's right. Yeah, I think more so in Psalm and Proverbs, he's telling you how to get down that path, right? How to go down the path of wisdom, but to obtain wisdom, that is the fear of the Lord. So, in order to take hold of it, you will not take hold of it until you fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord means you obtain wisdom. You take a hold of wisdom. But again, it's not God's wisdom per se. Uh, it's a derivative wisdom because we obviously, we are finite, right? We don't have the infinite wisdom that our Lord does, right? But yet at the same time, we know how precious it is. Solomon, for example, what did he ask for? Remember, the Lord offered to give him anything he desired. He didn't offer, he didn't ask for power or for riches. He asked it for wisdom, right? Be- Right, right. So la- 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 later on, that, that's true. That's very true, Pastor. Know the word of God, and even quote it as you say. That's right. Very proficient 
fear mm -hmm. or the reverence for the Lord mm -hmm. is cultivated over time. And we can say phrases like justification, sanctification, and use it really just terms. Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. If we truly believe that God was omnipresent, and He is, mm -hmm. uh, if, if that were cultivated and became a part of every day's activity, what we say, think, and do, we would have, besides repenting, mm -hmm. would begin to be a little bit more receptive to the leading and guiding. That's the right. God, yeah. Well, and I, th I think, Pastor, with that, it shows you that wisdom is conditional upon obedience. Because what started to happen with Solomon is that he, there obviously, you know, the, the writers of, um, of Kings and, and uh, Chronicles went to great pains to show when Solomon was in obedience, what profound effects his wisdom had. But then when he started to falter, he started to sin. He started to go his own way. He did not continue down the path of wisdom. He veered off the path of wisdom. Then that's when things started to go awry, right? You can hear the Word of God, receive the Word of God, live the Word of God, and sit on your backside, and it's all in vain. Then you're a Pharisee. Right, that's right. It, it, that's right. And again, th th there is that, that language that uh, the prayer that they would not deviate from the right to the left, that means stay on the path. Stay on the path of wisdom. Don't deviate. Again, whether it be legalism or whether it be hedonism, whatever it might be, those are all deviations of the path. The path of wisdom is to trust in the Lord. Again, with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Right, Philip? So even in Job's case, the suffering that he experienced, it was Christ who was drawing him closer to know him. Yes. So in, in our suffering, it grabs our attention and to seek him. And by seeking him is the first step of knowledge. That's right. Again, the, <laughs> where we get in trouble is when we stop seeking him. Right? We, we start seeking the things of this world. We start looking at um, uh, the things that um, uh, that uh, that will uh, again take his, take our eyes off of him, take our eyes off the path. Again, that's the imagery that Paul uses too. When you run a race, you run it deliberately. You don't run it aimlessly, do you? Right? You have an intent goal. You keep your eyes on the goal. You keep your eyes on the path because if you start looking elsewhere, you're going to trip and fall. Yeah, right. Yeah. Jordan, you know, you mentioned uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. And like mm -hmm. the two verses say, it's the beginning of wisdom. And it's that subjugation. Yes. Right? I am yeah. subjugating myself to the Lord. And I'm sitting at his feet. I'm forcing myself to, to sit at his feet. And then I can start to gain and walk mm -hmm. in his ways and gain wisdom and grow in wisdom. Like you're That's saying. right. But if I, like you said, if I get up and choose my own path, uh, then I'm not subjugating myself underneath him. Um, you know, I'm putting my way above his way, mm -hmm. and then I'm deviating and going to either side of the ditch. That's right. You know? That's right. Once we start taking our eyes off of that, we will, we will fall, just like Peter. I love that. I, love, I keep going back to that. But whenever, again, Jesus calls him out onto the water, 
And at first, he keeps his eyes on Christ, and he's doing fine. He's walking on water. But the moment he looks at his surroundings, he takes his eyes off of Christ. What does he do? He starts sinking, and Christ has, has to lift him up. And really, that is the Christian life. That's a Christian life in a, in a nutshell, basically, right? Is that we take our eyes off of him, and yet he comes and saves us, right? Jake? Yes. Um, Runs the opposite direction. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's right. Running from God. And so um, I thought that was, uh, you know, a good correlation there. Right, absolutely. Because, you know, oftentimes in our circumstances, you know, we, we, we think that God is just going to preserve us at every turn and be merciful and, and gracious. But sometimes he lets us go down those horrible paths yeah, for a reason. Um, because we, he knows what it takes for your heart. For, in the sanctification process. For some of us, it's a lighter road, but for some of us, it's a hard, hard road. It's a difficult road. It is a, a road full of pain and suffering because that's what it takes to kill the old man, right? And so we have to trust the Lord to be able to work this out in us. Jesse? Yes, uh, you used the word obedience in, uh, earlier, and uh, obedience of God's commandments, mm -hmm. you know, uh, is wisdom. It's just like the, in the Old Testament when the Israelites were out in the, in the wilderness and uh, or when God was going to promise the promised land to them. He would say, I'm going to give you this, all of this. It's all going to be yours. I'm going to clear out your enemies. I'm gonna, uh, you're going to have fertile fields. It's going to be a land of milk and honey. But he said, if you obey my commandments and my statutes, I will bless you, you know. Mm -hmm. And then he said, if you do don't those don't do those things, this is what's gonna come. That's you right. Know? And so they would they would obey the Lord for a little while mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden they're doing whatever they want to do mm -hmm. and the Lord brings all this stuff upon them. That's right. So, so it reminds me that uh, that uh, obedience is wisdom. That's right. God's word. That, that is, and that, that is the, um, uh, and, and again, it, that's it, uh, truly how we express our love to God. And that's what Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
If you love me, keep my commandments. It's, it, it's, that's hard for a society like ours today, where everything is negotiable. Everything is fungible, right? Um, especially morality and what God has, has declared. We like to cherry pick, right? And with things that we like and things that we don't. And so, but God, you know, he, he has written this in his word. It's permanent. It's permanent. You know, they, we, we often don't think about this, but the fact that the Ten Commandments were written in stone was purposeful. They could be read through all generations. It would never go away. Stone was considered eternal. And so that's what God's word is. It's eternal. It never passes away. It never goes away. And so, therefore, uh, we don't, we're not at freedom to then just dispose of the commands that we don't like, right? Because we, we will pass away, but his word will stand forever, right? right. So Amen. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. You go ahead, boy. No, I was just uh, yeah. thinking that, you know, the weird thing about ever since I became a Christian is that it's always been really easy for me to trust God for my eternal salvation. But... It's the things where he, where I think that I have a semblance of control that. Yeah. yeah exactly. Absolutely. And Absolutely. So much anxiety, and it's only about those things where I feel as if God's given me a little bit of control. Mm-hmm. I can make decisions about my family and stuff like that. It's so hard to yield everything other than your salvation, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely, because he, at the end of the day, as we as we will know, and it's told to us, we will give an account. Despite the fact that we're going to be saved, we're, at the end of the end of it, God is going to say not guilty. But we forget that we too will stand before God one day for everything that we do, every action, every idle word, every idle thought uh, that we we had in our mind. We're going to have to give an account to God, and uh, and and really, those are subject to to His uh, to be obedient towards as well as everything else in our life, especially you know it's our salvation. It's so funny. Yeah. We talked about that also on Sunday, on Sunday morning. Is there was a clear command to go to Nineveh, mm-hmm. and there's a clear command for obedience, and there's a clear command. It's not the hard things that are in the Word that mm-hmm. you know we really have to study and, and yeah. find out what this word means or what that word. It's the it's the easy things. It's yeah. Be kind to your neighbor. That's right. Be kind to those who do evil against you. Those are the things. We yes, absolutely. Crystal clear on what we are commanded to do, mm-hmm. and we. We still struggle. We, we still struggle with that. And, and, and again, having that in, in our thoughts, in our minds, that we will have to give an account to God. Because we, we tend to, if you believe in God's sovereignty, the tendency is to then uh, somewhat become fatalistic. Where, you know, God's got me covered, and so if I slip here and there, it's going to be okay, right? Uh, but no, God, uh, we, we forget that that sin is also what put Christ on the cross, right? Yeah, George. Yeah, we've been going through mm-hmm. uh, uh, Leviticus lately, mm-hmm. the scripture readings with the family. And, um, you know, God spells out like the seven, I think there's seven different um, sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it just hit us yesterday when reading and going over all those and having, he spelled out to them, each one of them, and what you must do, what the priest must do, and what you must do if you didn't realize you sinned. And yes. you to go and be sanctified and cleansed. Mm-hmm. And we made a comment to each other that we so flippantly, you know, ask forgiveness to the mm-hmm. Lord. You know, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. I'm sorry. And we move on almost, mm-hmm. um, at least me. And so, and yet he had 
that is imaging hmm. pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. Yes. And that was a temporal, non-permanent, and yet it was spelled out explicit in seven, That's right. six or seven different types of sacrifices you must make depending on what you were doing. And then you say, like you said, every sin is laid on Christ. And we mm-hmm. all too often are comfortable yes. with our sins having been laid on him. And us, yes, we have forgiveness in Christ. But when we repent, we really need to reflect and repent. Right. And not just be casual about it. That's right. Absolutely. We have to have a continual heart of repentance. Uh, one that's not, again, where we just don't go through the motions of something, you know, because uh, we think it's just a duty that we have to do. Even the Israelites back then, just think about that. They were going through the, all the sacrifices themselves. And I bet it felt somewhat routine, you know. That, but if they thought about it, you know, them having to put their hands on the head of the animal, transferring their sin... And that animal had to die. The blood had to be shed on their behalf. If we were to think in those kind of visceral terms, the bloody terms, uh, perhaps we will live our lives differently. But again, that's the problem, isn't it? We don't live in the visceral reality all the time, do we? We just kind of pass through it. So may God... Remind us constantly, that's what I pray for, that God remind me of what it cost. Yeah, and as you are describing earlier, the word of God remaining forever. Yes. And in tablets of stone. Yes. It's called, um, isn't it called the Ark of the Testimony? Yeah. Where the tablets and Aaron's rod and the manna were mm-hmm. put in there. And so you have that imagery of God's you know, testimony, right? Mm-hmm. That is given to us, and then on top of that is the mercy seat yes. covering, where the blood mm-hmm. of the sacrifice was sprinkled, covering over that. That's right. And so it's beautiful imagery. It is. It is beautiful imagery, and and it's imagery we should shouldn't forget. We should constantly remind ourselves again what God has done, and so as we will uh, go next week, um, and and look at at Job, and he, as he is going to make his case. Um, uh, think about your own times where you have thought about these wonderful truths, but then the next day you try to uh, go before God and make your case, right? Uh, We've all been guilty of that. We've had these wonderful moments of epiphany where um, we, we reflect on God's goodness, and then the next day we go back.